So in Parts of All, what you have is for the origin of the Grail is something remarkably different. In Parts of All, the Grail is a stone, uh, a green stone, I believe it's described as, that was in the crown of Lucifer, as the story says, that fell from the heavens, uh, loose from his crown, during the great battle in heaven between Lucifer and uh, the Christian God. discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damonosophy 2.0 with your host, Paul Frederick. And welcome, my friends and fellow Damons, to episode 8 of Damonosophy 2.0. This evening, our guest is a musician and author who incorporates themes of starry wisdom, mystery, and Setian philosophy into his art and music. He's been a member of the Temple of Set for 17 years and holds the degree of Magister Templi. He also currently serves as the seventh Grand Master of the Order of the Trapezoid within that organization. His music and occult pursuits intersect in the solo projects of Eyes of Legia which is Starry Wisdom and Ambient Doom, and Miss Dreamt, which is Found Sounds and Electroacoustic Experimentation, and Apophenia. We're going to listen to some of his music at the end here from Eyes of Legia, and I'm telling you all now you want to stick around because it's some pretty heavy stuff. And in addition to all that, he's working on a new book called Infernal Geometry, which is all about weird angles, law of the trapezoid, uh, sacred geometry, numerology, and all of that sort of thing, which I know you're going to find really interesting. So without further ado, here he is, Toby Chapel. Good evening, Paul. How are you? I'm good. Man, it's like uh, really great to have you on the show. Uh, I've been a fan of your, of your various works for many, many years. Um, and I'm really looking forward to uh, what gems of, of wisdom you might drop for us tonight. Um, so I guess I'll start this out with the big question. How did you find the left-hand path? So I grew up in the Deep South in the, the 1980s, which happened to have been the, the height of the unfortunate period known as the Satanic Panic in the U.S., and I had gotten into heavy metal around the mid-1980s and um, had kind of had the fantasies based off of what I was hearing at school and, and from parents and teachers of the, oh, this is the path to the devil. This is the path to Satanism. And originally I'm thinking, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, and then as I began to read more about it, began to understand that for bands that kind of dabbled in that bit of imagery that, you know, for the most part, they weren't serious about it. It was just a way to sell records. It was a way to play off the popular kind of rebellion that, uh, 
young listeners were finding uh, interesting at the time. But I ran across a book was a, uh, it was based on the old TV series In Search Of. It was narrated by Leonard Nimoy of Spock fame. Oh, yeah. That focused on all sorts of Fordian phenomena, right? Think of Bigfoot and Atlantis and the Bermuda Triangle and unexplained things, and uh, which I always thought was really interesting. You know, it was sort of, sort of sucked into this. And then when I ran across this book that was uh, based on the show, there was a chapter in the book talked about the witchcraft and Satanism and demonology and recounted the uh, author's encounter with Anton LaVey's Church of Satan and talked not only about the ritual things, the, the things that gained them a certain amount of notoriety from having a nude altar on in the, in the, in the ritual chamber and these sorts of things, uh, but delved into their philosophy as well that, that talked about the ethical underpinnings of it, talked about the real underlying purpose of it being not just a let's go find uh, a community wafer to, to trample on, let's really move beyond that, move beyond popular notions of good and evil, move beyond these prisons that we set up for ourselves that hold us back from our true potential because we're too beholden to what society or the religious background we grew up in, et cetera, have been holding us to. And so this kind of realigned my, my thinking quite a bit. In the, the place where I grew up, there wasn't really a lot of alternative religion there. This was before uh, the popular days of the Internet, when everyone now finds out about these different approaches that they had no idea of before and realize, oh, there are other people like me, that kind of thing. So as I began to, to, to read more about these things from what little bit was available to me at the time, I was flipping through the one day and the Oprah Winfrey show during the the infamous special that she had done around Satanism. You know, Satanism is alive and well in America today. And so I'm watching this and I'm realizing that most of the people on the show are completely full of it, seem to have either no idea what they're talking about or talking about the most insane, over-the-top, obviously fantastic things that have no bearing on reality that couldn't possibly be true. Yeah, the idea that there are millions of Satanists that are working around every corner to, to kidnap your children and rape your dog and uh, all this sort of thing. But there were two people on there that seemed to be actually speaking a bit of common sense and a bit of logic and a bit of uh, truth beyond all this. That I didn't remember their names at the time. I just remember this experience and remembered uh, certainly the distinct appearance of one of them uh, and kind of had this in the back of my mind because it matched up with what I had read about the, the actual philosophies behind Satanism as I understood it at the time compared to this popular caricature. Fast forward a few years after that, and I leave uh, the small town where I had grown up to go to a much bigger city to go to college. Uh, was to a great deal other things beyond what I had grown up with and began to sort of explore this. What do I really think about religion and related things? What do I think about my place in the world? What do I think about what is the purpose behind humanity, these sorts of things. And gradually became aware uh, through the magic of the internet of various groups that did explore these things in a much more serious fashion. And that was where I first ran across the name of the Temple of Set. Among the, the, 
the organizations that I had seen, they seemed to have a much more serious, academic, and down-to-earth, really, approach to this. And ethically, and in terms of what they were trying to explore, they really matched up with more with what I was looking for at the time. It was only after I joined that a few years later, in the year uh, 2000, that I realized, reading back through old newsletters within the temple, that the pair of people I had seen on the Oprah show all those years ago were in fact Dr. and Mrs. Aquino, uh, being two of the founders of the Temple of Set uh, and still both active members of it today. So that, like many other people that have a story related to that appearance, that it, it was sort of a coming full circle for me of the this original these original ideas that I had without context, now seeing someone who was an actual representative of them speaking truth, speaking common sense against the hysteria that was prevalent at the time, uh, and then later uh, discovering it when I was ready to really understand what it was it was about. Yeah, definitely. And and um, I'm, I'm excited that you mentioned the Oprah show because I remember seeing that also. So I actually saw the Geraldo Rivera exposing Satan's Underground um, episode. when. Too. Yeah, and I think that was yeah. like 1987 or 88, um, and and I didn't see the Oprah one when it came out, and but I'd heard about it. And so, you know, back in the day, well, if you didn't see it when it came out, then, well, it, you didn't have a friend who VHS recorded it. Well, that's it. You're probably never going to see it, you know? <laughs> you got to be lucky if you see it. We didn't know that, like, years later... All these things would just be on, on, on YouTube all the time. So it was several years later when I actually saw the Oprah one. But, I mean, both of those like, came out around the same time. And that really had such a, um, I think, a significant cultural impact on the development of what we now call the, the left-hand path. So many people got that first sensation, like you mentioned, um, of realizing that there's other people out there like me. Absolutely. And that intense courage that it took to stand up at that time to stand up for the truth, stand up for what was correct. Uh, because others who had prominent positions within this chose not to. Uh, Anton LeBay was invited to appear on both of these, um, chose not to. Uh, he did send his daughter uh, to speak on the Geraldo show, mm -hmm. uh, where she did find an ally at the time in Dr. Aquino. Um, but but yeah, there, there was that, that intense we're not just going to let you say all these nonsensical things about something that we hold dear. This is something that's not the, the hysterical version you're describing. It's not the unmitigated evil that you're describing. It is something else entirely. And the truth needs to be heard, not just your lies about it. That, that courage, that courageous aspect of it stuck with me for years and years as well. And having now met and, um, I feel like knowing Dr. Aquino um, and his wife somewhat well have seen that, that that was just part of who they are, of the taking the stand for what is correct, regardless of what the world at large thinks about it, mm -hmm. which is an extremely lesson for the left-hand path. Absolutely. So um, do you think there's something within that, within those values? Because I remember in, um, I think it's Oprah, he specifically Dr. Aquino specifically refers to like the values of the left-hand path. Like he refers to rational self-interest and personal responsibility and some of these things. So, do you think that's sort of emblematic of how the the TOS kind of 
stands out generally uh, from other left-hand path organizations? Absolutely. The part of it is that we take a, a what you might positive approach to it instead of just saying that we're not this, we're not this, we're against this, we're against that. Instead, the temple in particular takes the, the attitude that you have to have something to work towards. You have to have something to actually apply this to. It's not enough just to say that I've escaped from being a Christian or or whatever you may feel the need to escape from. It's more about what you then do with it later. And I think that's one of the limitations that the philosophies of the Church of Satan uh, had from 1969 to 75 when the temple then split off. Uh, it was that once you would gain that measure of freedom, there was no real idea about what should you then do with it. Whereas that's really the focus of what initiation and magical work is within the temple, this idea of taking a positive stand for what you can then become, not just what you've escaped from or stand yourself from. Yeah, so I, would, you say it's, uh, would you say it's nihilistic? To uh, uh, to not go that extra step, does that automatically – is it, would that be considered nihilism? I'm not sure if I'd call that nihilism. I think I would, I would definitely characterize it as getting stuck in the first thing that brings you freedom. The, similar to the idea – if you see, for example, if you know someone that the, the first time they really felt alive was when they uh, – you know, smoked a joint, and then they become a serial pothead. They just set mm -hmm. up a new prison to, to keep themselves within. Something they uh, they move beyond. But then they consider themselves free because, well, I, I have this thing that I was, and I'm not that thing anymore. Whatever I am now must be free. Freedom is something that has to be continually recreated, continually won. It's not just a one-time thing. Uh, and so I, I think it's... Um, I think it can lead to nihilism, uh, that not having that, where do I go with this now? But it's, it doesn't have that willed aspect of it that I, I personally usually associate with nihilism, where it's usually, screw it all, I, I want nothing, I want to be part of nothing. It's really more of the defaulting to it without even realizing it, Right. in that, in that sense, I'd say. It's kind of like they focus, like focusing on the, um, the thing or the manifestation rather than the process behind it. Absolutely. There's a wonderful quote from Nietzsche in The Spec of Zarathustra, I think, illustrates that very well, where he has Zarathustra say, uh, you call yourself free, your dominant thought I want to hear, and not merely that you've escaped from the yoke. Are you one of those who have the right to escape from the yoke? There are many who cast off their last virtue when they cast off their servitude. You call yourself free? I want to hear your dominant thought, not merely that you're uh, are free. Free from what? That doesn't matter to Zarathustra, but free for what? That is what your eyes should tell me rightly. Yeah. And I think that kind of captures this idea of the freedom is something that you must continually recreate in a new image. Otherwise, you just set yourself up for a new emotional uh, prison that holds you back. Yeah, definitely. And that's a great, that was a great quote from Nietzsche. Very chilling. Giving me chills. So, um, so uh, what kind of metal bands did you listen to in the 80s? 
that led you that you think so, like, kind of uh, led the to first... the left hand path and Satanism and stuff. So the first one that really grabbed me was Iron Maiden, um, and this was around the time they were because of their album The Number of the Beast. They were one of the sort of the poster children for people railing against the satanic influence of, of heavy metal. Now the band and themselves are quite clear about that no we're not satanists um the songs that talk about those things like number the song the number of the beast are just stories um the song was actually based on a nightmare by the uh the bassist who wrote it combined with um robert burns poem uh, tam chanter um but that imagery kind of caught me right mm-hmm. and then the one that i, that I really um uh, was attracted to much later was was slayer uh, I was introduced to Slayer around the time that South of Heaven came out in 1988, and I was sort of past that point thinking that, oh, they're all really Satanists, they're... but the whole imagery around the band, it was the first band that that I had seen where you couldn't just say, oh, it must be a gimmick. You kind of ha- had the feeling that there was really something deeper behind it, mm-hmm. um, even though they themselves are not really Satanists in, in any real sense, but uh, they were much more serious about that imagery. And it just really kind of caught me as something that was very different and something that awakened something within me that that was attracted to it and then began to want to know more even when I got past the initial illusions. Wow, yeah. Um, I, I, uh, I, I know what you're saying, that it's like you'd see these bands back then all these metal bands and they have all this like satanic imagery and then you'd be like you kind of get that exciting sort of like feel that oh maybe there's are these are some of the other people out there you know um but then you dig a little deeper and you right. find you read their interviews and they're just going they're just apologizing and they're like they really want to make sure that no one thinks that they're satanists and they're you know wearing crosses and stuff like that it's always very disappointing but the one that got me well i i did go ahead Sorry. Uh, well, I, I did get it right when I began listening to King Diamond and learning more, yeah. more about his philosophies. And yeah. then I found out later that he had actually had uh, become friends with Anton LaVey, had been named as a, an honorary priest within the Church of Satan, etc. Uh, that was one of the ones that, um, you know, for 99% of them, it's really just the fact that Satan makes a really good record salesman. Yeah. But for the, that, that 1% up, there is something deeper behind it where they do really try to put much more... Uh, accurate and evocative uh, imagery into the songs to to express what is their real beliefs, not just their marketing gimmick. Right. So um, I I think King Diamond, and I can't remember which album this is, but when I encountered King Diamond, that's the first album I ever saw where he specifically said, you know, hail to Anton LaVey. He's the one of the first, first artists I ever saw who said, this is based on Anton LaVey and 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 the Church of Satan and the Satanic Bible, um, and then like prior to that, I remember seeing um, when I discovered uh, Venom's album, Welcome to Hell. Yeah, is, I, I think that's it. And it's, it got a, a stylized Baphomet on it, and I'm like, all right. And I was already into the Satanic Bible and stuff by the time I I, I found Venom, and I was like, wow, this 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 is the shit. And but they never they never 
mentioned Anton LaVey, but you could tell from their lyrics that they had read the Satanic Bible. Like the, and they said, you know, Enomine de Nostri, Satanus Luciferic, so, you know, things like that that you only get out of the Satanic Bible. Yeah. So you knew that they were actually reading some of the stuff. Um, but the first one that really, really what? got me was um, Ozzy Osbourne. Did you ever hear his uh, Speak of the Devil album? It's like a double album of like I, live. I, right. I, I, I had actually seen that a few times in record stores uh, without actually listening to it. And then it was it was a bit later before I listened to it. I was really into Ozzy uh, around the time that his album Tribute came out, which was then okay. the five year anniversary of when his guitarist, Randy Rhodes, had, had sadly yeah. uh, passed away. Yeah. And that's when I first kind of became interested in that. And I originally I, I wasn't that interested in that album other than the the cool imagery uh for speak of the devil because i knew it was the guy that replaced randy rose uh, <laughs> so it was a bit of the well that i want to go back to the real guy uh, I'll, I'll give this one later right. um but yeah i i remember hearing all the rumors around ozzy about you know that you know he you know, bites the head off bats and these sorts of things and uh some some of that was marginally true uh, even if a bit accidental um you know i think he claims now that you know someone threw it on and he thought it was fake um, before he bit it and, and these kind of things. Um, but yeah, the, the, the interesting connection with Ozzy, though, speaking about the Randy Rhodes years, was um, my that was my original exposure to Aleister Crowley was because of the song, Mr. Crowley. Um, now, the song itself, when you read it carefully, I think is really kind of taking a dim view of Crowley. It's more, oh, look, look at this guy. He, he's kind of full of it. He thinks that he's this great magician, but he's really not. Um, but it was that, that sort of the hook. And then later when I began to read more deeply into uh, esoteric things and uh, more modern occultism, when I ran across the name, I already had the hook to realize, oh, that's the guy that was in the song from Ozzy. Let me go find out what this guy's really about. Wow, that's a great way to get introduced to Aleister Crowley. I, I, my introduction to Aleister Crowley was just trying to, like, finding his books in the library, trying to read it, and saying, "I don't know what this guy's talking about," um, and then moving <laughs> on from there. And I never, I never really grokked Crowley until many years later. Actually, until after I had studied through the Setian lens of uh, the significance of, of Crowley and the Aeon of Hardware and all of that sort of thing. Yeah, well, th that that was something that I, I kind of missed of being able to run across those kind of things in the library because first being in the small town, uh, the relatively small town that I grew up in, they just simply didn't have things like that in the library. It would have been considered too shocking uh, to or too blasphemous to have on the shelves. I, I'm assuming. I mean, then when I even when I went to college, I went to uh, Georgia Tech, which being a technical school doesn't have an anthropology department or a sociology department, and so. Those those kind of hooks were books that mentioned people in the in the modern occultism and things like that just weren't on the shelves because of the focus of what the school was about. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of here that I really began to to find find out about those things. Yeah. No, it's great. It's like uh, there's 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 sort of a um, a um, collecting of inertia. I feel or kind of a snowballing of people as they start to gather influences and quite often it starts out with just like musical a lot of people it's just musical influences and that sort of like triggers kind of a search and then it moves along to literary influences and then eventually somewhere down the line um it it it, it climaxes with actually meeting other people 
who are, who are actually doing it. Yeah, definitely. And then you, uh, from those people, you find out even more things you should go explore. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's wonderful how that sort of thing builds on itself. Um, and then of course, you know, as I made it through college and then, um, then had the money to spend on books and things like that, it becomes even better because now you can go to the specialist bookstores and actually afford to buy the books. Right. That helps. So you mentioned um, Anton LaVey, and I think that's a good uh, segue to talk about um, the order of the trapezoid. Um, and, and the order of the trapezoid, I understand, in, in some sense traces a, a, a lineage back, at least conceptually, with like Anton LaVey. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Uh, sure. The, the formal idea of the order of the trapezoid can be traced back to an announcement by LaVey in... 1970 in the cloven hoof which was the newsletter for the church of satan and he announced the order of the order of the trapezoid there and he described it as sort of the board of directors and the advisors for the church and as the idea moved on throughout the church of satan through at least 1975 it kind of varied exactly what he meant by it and how he described it but there was always this sense that it was meant to be a name for the hidden source behind the Church of Satan, where the Church of Satan was just the current manifestation of these ideas about initiation and magic and cosmology and these kind of things, whereas the Order of the Trapezoid was sort of the real deal behind the scenes. In the announcement that he made of that, he cited a handful of literary influences for this, in, which included works by H.P. Lovecraft, Frank Belknap Long, it, it, as well as a couple of books around uh, Pyramid Ali, which was one of LaVey's kind of fascinations. Um, and curiously, a book called The Command to Look by a photographer uh, named William Mortensen. Mm -hmm. Mortensen was, was an interesting character. He was a he was, a, he was a serious photographer uh, and was very well known in the 1930s, but much less so afterwards uh, because of the scandalous nature of much of his work. He took he created a lot of photographs that uh, focus on um, S&M type themes as well as witchcraft and occultism and Satanism, in addition to normal type subjects that you'd expect. Um, and in fact, his reputation was so um, blasphemous that... Uh, he was referred to by the photographer Ansel Adams as the Antichrist. Yeah. Uh, and his book, The Command to Look, which uh, included all of his theories around photography, what draws someone into a picture, what makes them feel like they must interact with it, they must acknowledge it, um, was an enormous influence on Anton LaVey. Uh, and in fact, after being out of print for a number of years, that's recently been reprinted and includes an essay by uh, Michael Moynihan, uh, that goes into a great deal of detail about the influence of the split on LeVay. Now, the the work by Lovecraft, uh, The Haunter of the Dark, and the work by uh, Frank Belknap Long called The Hounds of Tindalos, me, the Hounds of Tindalos uh, combined with the theories of Mortensen, all point to the, the significance of what LeVay called strange angles. The idea that if you have in the environment that you're in, if things are a bit off center or the walls are not quite square, 
that this can have an unsettling effect on those who are not aware of this property, not aware of this influence, but it can have a soothing or an inspirational effect on those who are. And this idea was uh, characterized by LaVey as the law of the trapezoid. In The Satanic Rituals, which was published in 1972 and was a sort of a revealing of slightly sanitized versions of the rites that have been performed by the Church of Satan for a number of years at that point, there was included among those rituals one called the Electrician Vorspiele, which is a German phrase that translates to the electrical preludes. If you've ever seen the movie Metropolis, the 1927 silent film, uh, notice in the, the animation sequence for the robot that is one of the central uh, characters within the movie. Um, it takes place in a sort of a mad lab. You have a mad scientist with all sorts of interesting electronic gadgetry, an enormous glowing pentagram hanging from the wall, and all of this becomes the, the mechanism by which the robot is given consciousness, is given awareness. This aesthetic as well as some more things in movies like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and uh, F.W. Renau's version of Faust were very influential on the aesthetic of the early Church of Satan, and especially on Anton LaVey's personal way that he approached rituals. Uh, you see shades of these same sort of uh, mad lab-type sequences in things like Frankenstein, you know, the the very well-known scene of where the monster is brought to life, mm -hmm. or even in something like the black cat with uh, Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, yeah. where there's a greater rituals around this. All these things were sort of an influence on not just aesthetically, but on the implications behind the magical uses of these things with LeVay and were a core function of what he called the order of the trapezoid. This was the idea that, there are these things that connect with us, connect with the reptilian brain, if you will, in ways that engage us in ways that our, our conscious mind cannot. And that somewhere hidden in there, in this transition between animal to fully conscious man, somewhere in there is a great secret around how we, we become self-aware, how we can leverage that as part of becoming fully ourselves. And that, that's what Order of the Trapezoid conceptually is, is trying to capture. As the Temple of Set began to develop, uh, in 1982, uh, Dr. Michael Aquino, um, who I believe has been on your show before as well, mm -hmm. um, took a, a side trip to Europe as part of uh, his official duties as a military officer at that point. He, um, he made a brief stop over in London, uh, dropped off some pamphlets about the temple at uh, the venerable occult store at Atlantis um, that was one of the seeds for the temple expanding into Europe, first through the English-speaking countries and then further into, into the continent. Um, and then he made a trip to uh, the infamous Wevelsberg Castle, Mm -hmm. uh, in the village of Wevelsburg near the town of Paderborn. Wevelsburg has quite a bit of a sinister reputation these days. At the time that he was there, it was very little known. Uh, this was, in, in, when he made the trip there, he was not even sure if it was still standing. 
but the reason that he went there was to perform a, a working, which has since become known as the Babelsberg working. Um, one of what the products of that working was the reconstitution of the Order of the Trapezoid as a knighthood dedicated to the defense of the Black Flame and the honor of the Prince of Darkness. The reason it was done there was because of some of the history of the castle. The castle was, uh, even though it had dated back to the first century of the Common Era in various forms of fortifications on the site, it was taken over in the early 1930s by Heinrich Himmler and the SS uh, to become Himmler's Grail Castle. He wanted to have his own castle where the there was the mystical and the magical center of the SS, who were intended to be the the elite of their ideas of, of the master race, you know, steeped in the 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 most um, the greatest ideals of the German race and so forth. Now, to what extent there was really a, a cult working going on there versus popular notions versus uh, some of the influences from the early 20th century that filtered into various aspects of the Third Reich is a question open for great debate. Um, there certainly was something going on and something undeniably strange mm -hmm. and very new in terms of what had previously been seen on that, that type of scale. It was also a place where, um, well, let's be frank, great evil was done mm -hmm. and great evil was conceived, evil was put into motion. Mm -hmm. So it has a bit of this contradiction, right? You have the, this idea that it's supposed to be the highest ideals of what the world was supposed to become with the SS as the elite of, of this of this master race, uh, where Timur wanted to make them into a, a sort of a combination of the Teutonic Knights and the Samurai and the Jesuits, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the the war scholars um, and so forth, combined with the with the uh, you know the great evil deeds done by the the SS and the Third Reich in general. Uh, so you have this inherent contradiction there as well, the place where these attempts at great things uh, were perverted into very evil things. So one of the things we've talked about here a couple of times is like focusing on the process instead of the thing itself and how sometimes a process, it can get derailed by being too attached to the thing itself and that um, something like that happened within all of that stuff that was going on. It was definitely, most certainly, a, a derailment of some kind and a, and a perversion of, of anything that would have been like, um, you know, a higher sort of ideal behind it. Um, but you know, one uh, get, getting back real just for a minute to the um, to the law of the trapezoid. I think one way that I see that happening is. In the book Houses That Kill, um, where they talk about – there's a study of haunted houses. And I know this is something that LaVey had talked about too, that uh, doing a study of houses and that often it's like the angles are um, – there's a high incidence in, in haunted houses um, of, of weird angles, trapezoidal angles. And if you watch – you know, there's a show Ghost Hunters. And there's a couple of shows like that I think out there nowadays where you know people go to the haunted houses and stuff. And – you know, if you watch this, a lot of it's BS, but quite frequently in these houses where I'm not saying they are haunted, 
but someone thought it was haunted. Someone reported it as haunted. When they go through and look in the house, you'll find there's like weird places. There's like one, you know, there'll be one room that like the, the, you know, that has a trapezoidal shape to it or something like that. And I think that's just such a, a fascinating testament um, to the reality of that law of the trapezoid. Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, you know, that book was published, I believe, in 1974, 75, something like that. So it came a little after um, this, these ideas that LeVay had already intuited. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it also speaks to um, the influences that he brought into it, especially that of Lovecraft and Frank Belt Avalon. Uh, LeVay had a great intuition about this, of that the, um, the angels being responsible for gateways into things not of this earth. Uh, idea that pops up in those stories was something that he added with his own experience of uh, being a connoisseur of strange places and haunted places uh, when he was trying to understand for himself why is it that there's this reaction and why do some people get off on it whereas others are you know run for the hills mm-hmm. um yeah, the Houses to Kill is a fantastic uh, book in, in that realm. There's there's a lot of wacky stuff in the book. Um, it's unfortunately kind of hard to find um, these days. It's uh, relatively rare, mm-hmm. uh, but it's it's definitely worth worth a read. Um, I, I'd say, in, especially in light of these ideas about the law of the trapezoid. So, so how do you? Um... What's, what's your recommendation for how someone deals with that? If someone has like angles in their house or, or something like that, um, w- would you have a recommendation for how they deal with the situation or is there a way to opportuni- op- opportunize on that? Hmm. Well, one thing I, w- I would say is read on some of these sources that, I, that I've mentioned to, to see, to get ideas for how this might be used to alter your experiences. Instead of thinking, oh, uh, well, the the builders that built the house didn't know what they were doing, or, oh, the house must be settling, it's just a natural thing. Use it as something that creates a bit of mystery in yourself. Use it as something that gives you ideas about different ways of looking at the world. Look at it as when you become aware of these things, take it as an opportunity to notice that something is slightly out of place in your environment and bring yourself to full awareness of this, full consciousness and awareness of where you're at and of being fully in control of your thoughts so that you use it as a way to train yourself to not just be asleep all the time. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, mystery in here. And so... That makes me think of the mythology or imagery associated with the Grail and the Grail quest, and that's a significant thing within the Order of the Trapezoid as well, is it not? It definitely is. Uh, so when the, the Order was originally uh, reconstituted by Dr. Aquino, he had this deep intuition, as he often does, um, about what in the deep, dim past was manifesting in this current idea. And his own knowledge uh, of the Germanic tradition didn't really go much deeper than the mid-19th century um, with uh, Wagner and the mythologizing of Wagner. And again, we have more connections here to why the Babelsberg Castle was the place where this had to be done, of course. And one of the particular operas that uh, was 
very well known by Wagner was his rendition of Parzival. And Parzival was a story from the 13th century by uh, that was first written down by uh, a poet named Wolfram von Eschenbach. Mm-hmm. So when most people think about the Grail Quest. You're familiar with you know King Arthur and the Holy Grail, and, and with movies like uh, the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which is yeah. a wonderful movie. Um, this idea that that it's a cup, and that it was the cup of Christ, and that it was uh, somehow taken from uh, from Jerusalem to make its way into Europe for the benefit of white people thousands of miles away from where the religion originated. Well, that's not the only version of the story. And in fact, uh, it's my contention that that's actually a later sort of a blind to uh, cover up what the real story is. You know, here's a good tale for if this is the limit of your imagination, but there's something deeper underneath. So in parts of all, what you have is for the origin of the grail is something remarkably different. In parts of all, the grail is a stone, uh, a green stone, I believe it's described as, that was in the crown of Lucifer, as the story says, that fell from the heavens, uh, loose from his crown during the great battle in heaven between Lucifer and uh, the Christian God. The stone falls to earth. Uh, the stone falls to earth and is then found by a knighthood who swear themselves to uphold its mystery and to safeguard it. And on this stone, it's said that it has so-called heathen writing that enables those who are able to understand it to see beyond the realm of three dimensions and five senses, to, to see beyond. Now, one of the ways that you could uh, look at this is in terms of medieval gem lore, which has a very, um, very prominent thing, uh, where you uh, different gemstones have different properties. They relate to magic and religion in different ways. You can certainly see it as a continuation of that war. But this idea that it, there was something special about this one stone that gives those who know how to read it the ability to see beyond the normal uh, senses is you know, something that's very significant. And obviously, it's a very different story from the idea about it being a cup. Yeah. So is that is that where that's where the philosopher's stone thing comes from, right? Yes. That's, and that's what ties in how it ties in with the Grail. Yes, definitely. Now, now it, this wasn't a completely original story to von Eschenbach either. Uh, this was during the time that uh, the Moorish occupation of the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, this is during a time when there was a great deal of commerce as well as a great deal of um, of conflict between the uh, the Christian world and the Muslim world, and the roots of this actually go back to uh, to Persia, uh, what we now know as Iran, uh, which it is itself an Indo-European culture. It's mm-hmm. just from the eastern branch of the Indo-European peoples, and so what seems to have been the case was these these uh, stories and this mythology uh, coming that have been left behind there coming through the Muslim world, which then uh, von Eschenbach would have encountered during his travels in the Pyrenees mm-hmm. in southern France, between France and Spain, and would have become aware of some of these legends and then, of course, put some original spin on it as well to, to turn it into this great epic. 
And some of, those, and some of those influences are going to be Zoroastrian too, right? Coming from that region and that time period, there's going to be that influence there, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Even if it was not recognized as such by them, mm-hmm. um, you know, it would have been passed through, you know, various other uh, religious guises uh, that would have shaped it. Where now, given uh, the current state of religious archaeology, so to speak, and linguistic anthropology, where these things can be traced back into their deep roots uh, in a way that was not really understood until um, 100 years ago or so. Uh, It enables us to kind of look back and see what these actual sources are of some of these things. Uh, Whereas to those hearing these stories in uh, the court where von Eschenbach would have delivered his, his epic tale, um, they would have been completely alien and foreign, and they would have assumed that it was solely um, his invention. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this idea of a knighthood dedicated to safeguarding this thing is part of the ideal of the Grail Quest. What the Grail Quest means to us within the Order of the Trapezoid is it's the pursuit of the perfection of the self, perfection in the sense of perfect knowledge of oneself, of keeping your sights forever on becoming more aware of your true essence. This draws on the idea that's part of Grail lore in general, the idea that it's always sought, never found, um, which is an idea that also comes from Van Eschenbach that's not present in some of the original uh, Celtic tailings of the tale where it was a cup. Um, and this is, um, this is the idea that the quest itself transforms you. There is no end of the quest. There's only faithfulness to the quest. And your degree of faithfulness to the quest is the barometer for your success. Mm-hmm. So in one sense, that uh, faith faithfulness to the quest is sort of like uh, a way of focusing um, intensely on the process and avoiding getting wrapped up in the, uh, in the thing itself, like we kind of mentioned a couple of times throughout this conversation. Yeah, exactly. It's devotion to the process, not devotion to the product of the process. Yeah. And so that's that seriously, dude, you you blew my mind with the uh, von Eschenbach and the so the stone, the philosopher's stone is actually uh, a green stone from the crown of Lucifer. So so right there, that's the left hand path. You know, that's the left hand path, Luciferian satanic basis for uh, the whole concept of, of, of Grail Quest and knighthood and the, and the endless search and everything right there. Because that's one thing that I think people um, who aren't familiar with these ideas uh, see these things from the outside and they think like, well, a knighthood order is like an inherently like Christian kind of like right-hand path kind of thing. But it, it, it feels like, uh, for what you're saying, when you dig down into it, like so many other things, when you dig down into it, you find that most of this right-hand path stuff is just – you know things that were artificially superimposed on on these like original, more ancient sort of uh, mythical patterns. Well, the knight has always been uh, an individual. He's always only had himself to trust in. Uh, he may have companions from time to time, but ultimately he's self reliant. He's relying more on himself than anyone else, knowing that only he can fulfill his own quest. Um, and even the traditional chivalric uh, virtues like honor and faithfulness and so forth can easily be seen in left-hand left-hand context, so that they're it's not just um, 
devotion to the Christian God, uh, for example, but but more of devotion to one's own ideals, devotion to the quest itself, as we say. Yeah, excellent. And, and, in ter- and even in terms of traditional knight- knighthoods, one of the um, one of the recognized, widely recognized uh, requirements for forming a so-called legitimate knighthood is that it must be done by someone um, who is uh, or can be done by someone as one method of someone who is a religious leader. At the time of the Valesburg working, Dr. Aquino, as high priest of Set, possessed that authority to do so. Uh, this is a concept called the Fons Honorum, uh, which is a Latin phrase meaning the font of honor. It's the authority from which a knighthood derives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in that sense, it is legitimate and is recognized as legitimate um, by having these ideals that it works for, towards and having this religious component that can be used by the individuals pursuing this quest. And it really reiterates the, the seriousness with which all these things are taken. You know that this isn't just you know um, you know having having fun with like names and titles and stuff like that. There's a very very serious and very uh, sac- sense of the sacred in approaching these things. Absolutely, it's it provides us with some certainly evocative imagery from the stories that are connected with uh, knighthoods and things like that in the Germanic tradition, um, but. It's also it's extremely serious in terms of the devotion that we have towards this as the the frame of reference from which we operate and the the way that we see this quest. Mm-hmm. So um, we've been talking a lot about angles here too. So I hear you might be writing a book about angles. Uh, th- that's right. Uh, I am completing uh, the first draft of that, which I hope to have ready shortly, uh, and uh, will then be uh, pursuing getting that uh, published in an appropriate place. Um, so what the book focuses on uh, is what I call infernal geometry. And this is, in a sense, sort of a contrast to the more well-known sacred geometry. Uh, and this idea of the angular tradition within the Church of Satan and later the Temple of Set expressed for things like the aforementioned, the electrician Borspila, and the works of H.P. Lovecraft, in particular, Dreams of the Witch House and The Haunter of the Dark, um, as well as other stories, as, uh, as well as other sources like uh, Pythagorean number mysticism and cosmology. All these things sort of come together in something that we call the Nine Angles. This was originally written about in the Satanic Rituals by Dr. Aquino with a uh, ceremony that he published there called the Ceremony of the Nine Angles, which was essentially taking ideas of Pythagorean number lore and expressing them through an aesthetic of H. Lovecraft, um, and as well as through the, the lens of Satanism as he understood it at the time uh, in the early 1970s. It also accompanied, is accompanied by uh, a magical language that was created for use in it, uh, drawing on a couple of phrases and things like the Lovecraft stories, The Call to Cthulhu, uh, and uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, running with that idea, taking influences of things like Enochian and other magical languages to create something that's unique to these rituals, 
um, and that would be more fitting for something like the Lovecraftian Outer Gods of Azathoth and Nyarlathotep and so forth, who don't possess human vocal apparatus anyway, so their sounds would necessarily have to be different from the ones that we create. The, the Ceremony of the Nine Angles was a influential work within the Church of Satan. It, because of the, the connections with Angles and Lovecraft and so forth, it became part of the war of the Order of the Trapezoid, as expressed in the Temple of Set as well. In the late 1980s, Dr. Stephen Flowers, uh, the renowned uh, runologist, was uh, looking at a lot of the things within the Church of Satan that had not been looked at lately. Noticeably, at, at the, the height of the Satanic Panic in the late 1980s, he was looking at things like uh, different chapters within the Satanic Bible, different rituals are written by Anton LaVey, and re-examining them to see, you know, some 15 years later at that point, what can we see in these things now that was not available to us before that we didn't see? You know, what, could, what were we not prepared to, to understand yet that maybe now we can? You know, digging deeper into the roots of things in order to be transformed by them. And... He took the Ceremony of the Nine Angles, uh, talked with Dr. Aquino to understand more of, of its conception, what it was about, and brought uh, elements from his areas of expertise, which are Germanic languages, Germanic esotericism, to, to greatly expand on this system, to take it with something that was just this one ritual, to now turn it into an entire system of magic. Um, this has been something that... Uh, taught me kind of from the very beginning when I joined the Order of the Trapezoid as something that I found very evocative and very appealing, uh, that as I learned more about it and gained greater proficiency with it and made some of my own innovations to it, was eventually what led me to becoming a master of that order, and then a couple of years following that to become the Grand Master of the Order. And as I looked to these things that, are, that drew me into the Order, um, and began to to wonder what the best way would be to articulate them myself. How can it, what can I now teach that I have this deep understanding about it? And that was when the idea arrived that perhaps I should do a book on it, which I've been working on for a couple of years now, uh, including all the research into it to dig deeper into these roots. I in the book I talk about like Pythagoras. I go deeper into the the lore around the numbers three and nine in the Indo-European religions and societies. I dig very deeply into the history of these things within the Church of Satan and the Temple of Set. Uh, there's a chapter about purely about geometry, the idea that if you're going to use a metaphor or something magical, you should know the actual thing that that metaphor is based on as well, so that you're not just uh, talking out of your ass, more or less, right. um, so that you can actually apply um, and then, as well as giving an in-depth analysis of the Electrician Borshvila, the Ceremony of the Nine Angles, of the Call to Cthulhu as the other ritual that delves into these things, and then to turn it into something that's a living, practical, uh, magical exploration to give further ideas, these are things you should consider working with and to develop your own understanding of these things. Don't just treat this as something to be, to be memorized but it's something to use in your own work of self-knowledge and self-transformation. That's so exciting. So is there, is there a name for the book? Uh, the name of the book is Infernal Geometry. Infernal Geometry. Awesome. 
Well, that's exciting, man. That's awesome. You got to keep us informed about that. I uh, really look forward to that. So, you know, one thing I'll say about the nine angles is that I, like probably a lot of people, first became familiar with this whole concept, with this this ritual, Ceremony of the Nine Angles, from reading Anton LaVey's book, uh, The Satanic Rituals. And of course, at the time, reading it, not having any idea that this was actually written by Dr. Michael Aquino. Um, and, and only finding that out many years later. And then the next really significant thing that I recall is seeing, um, I was uh, fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time to see uh, Stephen Flowers give, a, a, I think, his initial talk about like the seal of Runa and the nine angles where he like mapped everything out. And I remember um, everyone who was there for that was just like, you know, absolutely uh, mesmerized by the whole thing. So... Um, I think this is really exciting that you're kind of like coming back and bringing it, tying it all together and, and bringing it back around because there's obviously, there's something very significant about, about these nine angles and about the, the, you know, everything that's wrapped up in, in this idea of infernal geometry that you're working with. Definitely. Well, you know, um, for the last nine years, the order of the trapezoid has been engaged in, year-long studies of each of the angles and their significance and their meaning and how they can be applied uh, in a magical sense. And at the end of each one of those years, the at the Temple of Set's annual international conclave, a, a magical working open to everyone who's there, has been presented. Sort of the sharing, this is what the Order has done with us this year. We've moved on to the next one, but now we're telling, we're explaining to you what we've learned in the past year. Um, and so in a sense, that's been – you can look at that as nine years of, of workings, but you can also look at that as one nine-year-long working, which is something that's um, a very difficult thing to pull off, I think, and it's not something that most groups, frankly, stick around long enough to be able to do. Right. Um, but it's something that this – is, this is the order taking a, a very in-depth look at something that's been one of its core technologies – looking at it in a level of depth that we've never done before in order to learn, learn for ourselves and to what we can teach from this about what can we understand about this now, but maybe we didn't have the understanding to piece together before. Um, very connected uh, to the principle of runa, uh, which is the word of Stephen Flowers. Uh, runa is a... Um, the Germanic root for words like runes, mm -hmm. uh, and it means mystery. It means the hidden, and it refers to uh, the primal, deep uh, mystery behind all things. That in order to know yourself, you have to explore the mystery of what it is to be a self. You have to explore the mystery of the world that you find yourself working within in order to fully understand your place within it. And how it can be developed. But the thing about mystery is once you uncover one mystery, there's more mystery deeper behind it. Mm -hmm. And so it's a never-ending quest. It is a grail quest in a sense. It's one of the emblems of the grail quest, this idea of the seal of Runa, which is the nine angles with uh, the seal of what we call the ring of nature around it, which is in the pentagram of Set used by the Temple of Set, you have the perfect circle and you have the inverted pentagram within it that does not touch the circle signifying that the individual, the individual sentient subjective universe is separate from 
the objective universe from you know the physical world. Um, even though it works within it, it's a separate thing from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- this is a very deep idea within the order of the trapezoid as well. It's very, very relevant. So to me, again, I don't know, maybe this is just where my mind is tonight, but this comes back to the idea of staying true to the process, right? Because the, uh, the idea of like, you know, um, focusing on the mystery and then seeing that that leads to another mystery, that's kind of like staying it, – It's because staying true to the process is kind of like staying true to the mystery because that's like sort of what the process is, right? It's mysterious. We don't really fully comprehend the process that we're like going through right now, but we have some sense that we need to stick with it, you know? Right. Well, and it's a path towards clarity. You know, when you hear about mysterious and, and or mystery and occult uh, circles, you know, usually think of you know, mysticism and you know woo woo stuff. It's like, oh, it's just a mystery. We don't understand. We we we're we're too our minds are too puny to understand mm-hmm. mystery. And this this is this is the sense of the hidden that draws us forward into digging deeper into the roots of things. That draws us forward into uncovering what we can see, and then finding that there's more that we don't understand beyond. But now we can see what that is. You think of the idea of you know the the tale of the discovery of Pike's Peak in Colorado by the explorer Zebulon Pike, where he, he sees this mountain from a distance. He sees how big it is, and he sets his sights on it. He says, I must climb this mountain. He climbs the mountain, reaches the top, and realizes the true mountain was even further than he had thought. But he couldn't see that until he had unraveled this mystery, uh, until he had crested this one mountain, and now he can see what really lies beyond. Uh, this is connected very much with uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's ideas of horizon building, the idea that the the most innate faculty of man is to build horizons for himself. But then having built that horizon, you can now see even further, and you can see towards the next horizon you must build. Uh, this is this is the way that we approach mystery. This is the, the path towards clarity. You've gained clarity both in what you now understand, but also beyond in what now you have a better sense of what you don't know mm-hmm. because you've increased, you know. So why do you think, why, why are we obsessed with this mystery? What is it in man that is obsessed with this mystery and, and seeks to follow? And more, more significantly, why does it seem like some people are obsessed with this and other people aren't? Because there's a lot of people who don't care about this out there, you know? Hmm. Well, I, I think it's related to the extent to which you're willing to admit to yourself that you don't know. Mm-hmm. If and that's like really discouraged, actually, in a lot of like um, a lot of levels of society and like ordinary social interaction. That's like one thing you never should never say is I don't know. You know, when you're working through a job or at school or something, you know, the, the ordinary things that we do in life, it's like that's like sort of a it's sort of a um, an, an admission of, of, of weakness to say, I don't know something, you know. Yeah, well, and especially as you become you know more senior in your field. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so, you know, by day, I, I am a senior storage engineer for a uh, prominent tech company um, in, in Atlanta and. The um, 
oddly enough, I, and I think I certainly hope this is appreciated among the people that I work with, I, oddly enough, since I've taken the senior position, you hear the words, I don't know even more mm-hmm. because I'm well aware of what I do and don't know. And I, it's not to my advantage to BS anybody about what I do know. If it's something that I need to explore further, then I'm going to give you that answer instead of trying to give you some you know, BS response to, to make you think that I know what I'm talking about when I don't. Um, and so, yeah, there, there's definitely that, there's that bias against admitting that you don't know, that bias against admitting that you, that there's still more work to do. Right. And I think, I think what it comes back to is the idea of mastery in general. Uh, the idea that if there's, if there's something that's a never ending quest to become better at something, you having the constitution for such an idea, whether it, whether it's you know becoming the best baseball player you can or the best artist you can or even the best mother you can, I mean there's there's really no no kind of restrictions on on what I'm referring to here in terms of things that can be mastered. If it takes a lifetime of work to get there and you still have more to learn, it's something that benefits from this idea of mastery. And some people are cut out for those kinds of pursuits, and some people aren't. And in order to successfully work along those kind of pursuits, you have to be willing to deal with the plateaus, the, the place where you don't seem to be gaining these skills. You have to deal with finding, finding someone who knows more than you that maybe is a little bit ahead of you or a little bit behind you that can teach you what you don't know and teach you ways to get, to get there. Yeah. And among people that have truly mastered something, if you look at a world-class musician, for example, they are assuming they have to, they have the time to continue to hone their craft, you would find them spending more time working with fundamentals than you would with anything else. You think, oh, well, surely you know how to do this scale. You've been doing that for 20 years. Well, but reinforcing those those basic fundamental skills is a core necessity in mastering something. You know, as I you mentioned earlier about being a musician, I think, and you know, I've been a musician for. Um, it's been 30 years now since I began playing uh, the guitar and you know, one of the things I find most satisfying about it, oddly enough, is the basic changing strings and getting tuned up. Mm-hmm. And it's not because, you know, I, I don't have better things to do with the instrument. I, I've been making a recording music for about uh, nearly 20 years now, but it's that, that satisfaction of getting deep into the, the most basic parts of what it takes to apply some level of understanding and mastery to it, knowing that anything that I do to increase those types of skills are going to increase what I'm capable of among the more complex things. Mm -hmm. And devoting yourself to something for a lifetime is simply not something most people have the constitution for, or they're either, they're not capable of focusing, they're too easily distracted, or they're, they're much like, you know, the squirrel that runs up and down the tree of Yggdrasil in Germanic, uh, northern Germanic uh, mythology, where um, he's going from one branch to the next, never staying more than a moment in any one of them. Yeah. Uh, and does, has no depth of understanding of any of them. He just has a surface level um, vague idea of what they're each about. Right. And or or that they, they, they don't have they, the... Um, the the courage to admit that they don't know certain things again it's like the 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 need to like cover that up that right there is probably one of the reasons why the world we live in is so full of lies because people want to admit oh i don't know that people just you know they bluff it all the time you know 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's so many more things that distract us now. Uh, I mean, it's it's becoming harder and harder to remain focused. Mm-hmm. You have too much you have too much going on. You have too many shows on on TV. Uh, you know, too many notifications on your phone. You know, too many sounds in your environment from people doing, you know, playing loud music or, or, or whatever. It, it's we're maintaining focus and sticking with one thing long enough to truly master it is becoming a lost skill for many people, and that's mm-hmm. and that's sad in a, in a way. Uh, but it means that it's even a, a more rewarding experience, I think, for those who do have the constitution and the focus in order to to pursue such things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people. Um, the irony is that in order to obtain mastery, you really have to be able to to uh, take on the mentality of a student. You have to really be able to say to yourself honestly, I'm a student of this and I'm learning this. And it's like, that's actually, the, ironically, paradoxically, that's actually has more to do with mastery than I think a lot of people suspect. And I think that's one reason why you see um, these ideas about you know focusing on the process, um, focusing on the mystery, um, you know, having the question about things they keep coming uh, back again and again throughout this whole, you know, body of, of, of initiatory ideas. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You, you have to, in order to master something, you have to remain a student of it. You have to continually delve into the most basic ideas of it in order to understand at a deeper and deeper level what it's really about. So another, uh, great instance of talking about, uh, Masters of Teachers in Schools is in something else you mentioned, um, uh, Pythagoras and Pythagoras's mm-hmm. Academy. Um, and I know you've done a lot of work with that. You've probably got some – you probably have a chapter planned on that in uh, Infernal Geometry. Um, and the idea I've heard you speak about before of Harmonia. Could you uh, share a little bit of that with us? Yeah. Um, so the English word harmony, which we normally think of as – is either being about music or being about uh, you know, getting along, uh, goes back to a Greek word, uh, harmonia, which the original meanings of this word were fitting together or a joint, um, with the musical meaning being kind of like a tertiary meaning associated with it. And this in turn derives from a, a verb um, called harmazo, which means something like I fit together, I arrange, I command, I compose. Uh, these to me are suggestive of uh, this idea of initiation being a will building up of order within yourself, you know, creating coherence within yourself so that actions match words, so that there's a consistency to your understanding, consistency to your action. Uh, and it's one of the properties of our non-natural psyche, the non-natural consciousness that we possess as humans, uh, that we're able to apprehend this the beauty of this type of willed order within and beyond ourselves. In uh, one of the foundational texts within the temple, uh, the book of coming forth by night, uh, which there are a couple of ideas expressed that, that go along with this, um, which uh, one of them is where it says, I set and distinct myself from the order of the cosmos, you know, and ordered in and of myself. And in another place, it mentions that when I first came into this world, I gave to you my great pentagram, timeless measure of beauty through proportion. Now, the pentagram, in addition to being the symbol for the Temple of Set, is also uh, somewhat well known as 
the symbol for the Pythagoreans as well. Mm -hmm. uh, part of this was the idea because the pentagram embodies the golden ratio. There was a great secret embedded within the symbol, and that if you knew that you were talking to another initiate of the Pythagorean Brotherhood, if they could explain the significance of the symbol to you. There was a, a one of the pre-Socratic Greek philosophers uh, was a man named uh, Anaximander, and he had this idea of uh, the interaction between the apiron, meaning the unlimited, and the pyron, meaning the limited. Uh, and what the Pythagoreans took from this idea and added was this idea of harmonia, this fitting together, of seeing this as like a mediating or sort of a reconciling force between the two. When you think about you have two points on a line the in a very dualistic system where the they have no no meaning apart from each other this this dot is not that dot the other dot is not that dot that's the only they, they have no expression of themselves other, other than I'm not that mm -hmm. uh, adding a third uh, perspective here gives you the way of seeing perspective between the two of uh, being arranged at a different angle to them, seeing them from different angles, seeing them from different points of view. Um, this is uh, related to the uh, this part of the symbolism behind the pentagram of Set, the symbol that we use with the Temple of Set, where the finite self, the pentagram in between that I mentioned earlier, is it apprehends itself as distinct from the objective universe represented by the circle surrounding it, which doesn't touch it. Touch it. Um, This is also kind of related to the muses in Greek mythology, whose mother of the nine muses was Mnemosyne, the goddess of memory. Right? This is not everyday memory like remembering that today is the day you're supposed to take the trash out of the curb. This is memory of something like what the, uh, the writer Jocelyn Godwin characterized as the power of recapturing our other modes of being, of remembering where we came from and who we really are and where we're really going. It's also interesting, I think, that the muses were led by Apollo, who was the god of order and beauty, uh, and who directed that memory towards con constructive ends instead of it just being a, uh, an isolated uh, uh, hobby there. Um, and so looking at these ideas of, of harmonia, of this reconciling force, uh, of this perspective that we add into understanding ourselves as ordered coherent beings and creating greater order within them, we can turn this into a magical tool, a magical praxis, where we can characterize this as something like from, from the deep memory of our true selves, we can, through order and, and the apprehension of beauty, channel inspiration and understanding. And things that we do, artistic byproducts of this, things we create, serve to represent a successful application of this process. Mm -hmm. Sort of the idea that you know, you you create the music or the literature or the art uh, that you're able to create at that time based on yourself, based on your understanding. You know, if it is truly reflecting yourself, it's going to reflect the level to which you have this ordered, coherent self that's not just random. Not it's not the squirrel going up and down the tree is actually focused on what it is, what it can become. Mm -hmm. And this ties up very nicely with the idea of kefir within the temple, of becoming, of becoming more than oneself, of becoming more aware of the true nature of oneself. 
so this by creating a, a greater harmony between the self and its memories of its own true character, this provides a way of becoming, of, of becoming more aware, more complete, even though that is a never-ending quest. It's, it's an iterative process that continues to move us along in, in that quest. Mm-hmm. And didn't um, is it, one of Pythagoras' ideas is um, harmony of the planet, or symphony of the planets. Right. Yeah, the harmony of the spheres. The uh, spheres, the that's it. Different, There's a different way that it's characterized. Right, well, this idea that um, the order that we perceive within ourselves is a microcosmic version of the order that's within the cosmos. Uh, you know, the hermetic idea of as above, so below is mm-hmm. very close to that as well. Um which is, which is interesting. So we can look at this for, by saying, okay, if we study the heavens, we study the laws of the universe, um, that, that doesn't completely uh, explain our own true natures, but it does give a certain insight into that. By, by studying uh, the world outside ourselves, we learn more about the world within ourselves because we understand better how to relate to that world outside ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, now the you know the level of precision in um, understanding of you know the the physics behind the planets and the stars and so forth was was of course a bit behind what we understand currently, um, but there was there was a concept here that the Pythagoreans explored that has been influential on that 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 does teach that by studying order in this fashion we learn more about order within ourselves. And in fact, those ideas about um, the harmony of the spheres or the music of the spheres were extraordinary, extraordinarily influential on Johannes Kepler, who is the man who then who created or, or discovered rather the, uh, the what he called the laws of the harmonic laws of motion that described um, the orbits of the planets as being ellipses with uh, the sun at one locus and then another one outside it around which the planets revolve and so forth. So it's always been very interesting to me studying Kepler. Of, he was very influenced by Hermetic philosophy and going back to Plato and Pythagoras and their ideas about the nature of the cosmos. But then he used those as a launching off point to match them to actual um, understanding of the laws behind it, mm-hmm. of taking of the mystical understanding of the world and then the physical understanding of the world and instead of seeing them as one refuting the other or one superseding the other, seeing them as part of you know, two two ways of understanding the same sets of ideas. Yeah. So you know, the, one of the things about Pythagoras, um, which you've you've mentioned several times um, already, is is the connection with music in there. I mean, obviously, harmonia um, is is a musical thing, and you know, I consider there's some sort of like brotherhood between um, Pythagoras, Anton LaVey, and Gurdjieff because these are the great spiritual teachers who taught with music, right? Uh, it's, it's something very significant about it, and you know, that's something with this uh, with uh, the D2 podcast we've noticed is like all of the great left hand path magicians also seem to be uh, left hand path um, musicians. Um, so I, I think there's something interesting going on there too, you know. Well, I think the connection between the three is um, most readily seen in Gurdjieff's Law of Octaves, 
the idea that you have uh, things that recur because they're cyclical in nature and that by applying understanding of when and where to uh, to nudge things in certain directions, you can you can make things come into being into, into different ways. And that's like with now, the shocks, right? The shocks yeah, from yeah. like the half steps on the scale. Precisely, yeah. I, and then like with LeVay, that shows up in, uh, there's an essay that concludes the, the satanic rituals called The Unknown Known, where he talks about the magical properties of the number nine, and he talks about things like the... Um, the, the world ice doctrine or the Welt ice era of uh, the German engineer Hans Horbiger, which was a very popular thing in the 1920s and 30s Germany, because it was seen as sort of a, a German physics that that refuted the you know the Jewish physics of people mm -hmm. like Einstein. This idea that everything goes in cycles, and that if you understand cycles, you understand how to make things happen within the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and LeVay kind of ran with this um, and connected it with um, his own ideas about the number nine, which always returns to itself. If you multiply nine by any other number and then add the digits of that resulting product, those digits add up to a number that's also nine. Now, as it happens in the, our base 10 counting system, nine is the magic number there because we use base 10. Um, but it's really, if you used base seven, then six would be the magic number with those same properties. Um, it's a, it's always n minus one is the number that has that property of eternal return there. Um, so yeah, there, there's some definite, both indirect and direct uh, correlations, I think, between the teachings of those those three. Of but, the with the, but with the musical scale, to contrast that with the musical scale, like in, in Gurdjieff's octaves and, and the Law of Seven and everything, that's objective though, right? I mean, that's just how... If you go down and you know the tone of, of like how a musical scale goes, it's got you know uh, seven seven steps and two uh, half steps or right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, it, it's based. It, you know, Plato ran with the idea of uh, the Pythagorean work with music and incorporated it into his own cosmology in the Timaeus, uh, the dialogue called the Timaeus, that described how the universe was formed by by taking these progressive uh, portions of the unmanifest, of the Aperon, the, uh, of the unlimited, and turning it into uh, the physical universe that we perceive. And if you look at the proportions that he mentions, they are precisely the, the proportions used in the Pythagorean scales. And then at the end, he mentions, oh, and then when all this was created, there was this little bit left over. And the amount that he describes as being left over is exactly what's called of the Pythagorean comma, which is as you do the cycle of fifths when you say that you take a note and then its frequency multiply it by three over two and by 1.5 to get the fifth in the scale and then do this in order. When you get back to the original note, you're off by just a little bit because of the way the mathematics worked out. That exact number is the amount that was left over when the universe was created according to Plato. So you have this idea of the the universe, the cosmos, literally being created in the fashion of the musical scale. And since that resonance is there, then by understanding music, understanding how the notes of the scale interact with each other, we can now understand the cosmos by proxy. Yeah. So, so yeah, very, very idea in, in Western in Western thought pops up in all kinds of fun and interesting ways. You know, I, I recently read... Um the book 
Uh, I think it's called it's Pythagoras. It's a it's a TLS reading list book, um, and it's Pythagoras a life or Pythagoras' uh-huh. teachings. Yeah, um, and it's by a famous author. I can't remember his name right now, um, but he makes a, one of his over overall points is that um, Plato kind of ripped off Pythagoras in a lot of ways. He, he makes this this assertion that Plato kind of like stole a lot of things from Pythagoras. Um, but the other thing that he talks about is is you know following his movements through the reporting of um, various other you know historians who mentioned what what Pythagoras's life was and where he went is that he probably didn't spend as much time in Egypt as we think and he spent a lot of time with the Persians he probably got lots of influences from Zoroastrianism he was held captive in in, in Babylon or, or or something like that for for like a number of years so I found that really interesting. And and the other thing that I found interesting is that this book, I, I don't, I didn't see it in there. It doesn't mention the pentagram in there anywhere. And I'm like, that seems like one of the most important. Th- that's a, one of the main things in my book, you know. Well, it, it depends on how much um, you want to concentrate on the on the more mystical aspects of Pythagoras and Plato and Plato people versus versus not. Um, is it's it's sort of become. The, uh, the trend, I guess you'd say, in academic philosophy to dismiss the more mystical aspects of uh, Plato, especially. Uh, but, you know, eventually it'll come back and then we realize, when they realize that there is something there that's worth exploring and that you can't have one without the other. You can't just take half of the philosophy uh, and treat it as if, it's the, as if it's the entire thing. Yeah. And you have to, you have to go back to Pythagoras eventually because you're talking about music. Did you ever see that? Uh, that Disney film with uh, Donald Duck, where he's like he's talking about angles and he's like shooting pool, and then they show like the Greek guys in the mystery schools and how the how the and they demonstrate how the scale like um, you know how it appears and everything. Do you ever see that? Absolutely, yeah. I, I think it's called something like Donald Duck explains sacred geometry or something. Yeah, like that. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, absolutely fascinating, and, and it, it it sort of shows the the adventurousness in really understanding the roots of these art forms that that you had among you know uh animators like disney back then that you just don't see that sort of thing now or if you do it's a uh not presented in the same sort of a seriousness yeah and it's just mind-blowing that someone you know i can't even think what year pythagoras would have lived right now what would that be like 500 BC yeah it would have been or... like yeah, been like the mid to late 6th century BCE. Okay. So it just it, it blows my mind that way back then someone basically discovered musical scales. You know, going to the extent, I'm sure there he was building off work from other people too, but someone sat down and mapped all this out and said, "Here's how the scales work." And then, you know, and then you get into scales within scales and variations and it quickly just, you know, it 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 moves off into infinity. Um, but it just blows my mind that someone actually did that, put all that together, codified it all in like a system, in a school, like academic, you know, kind of like teaching, um, where people got together and it was like an exclusive, like area of study for a while that was comprehensive and integrative too, because it wasn't, you know, all, um, all, all signs point to this wasn't just, they weren't just like jamming, you know, to like play tunes. It represents a 
internal sort of cycle that, like you were saying um, earlier, it, it represents the internal structure of man in relation to the external structure of the uh, objective universe. Right. Well, it's it's a great example of what happens when you respond to that call of mystery, when you realize that there's something deeper behind this that I don't understand, and I have to understand it. Yeah. And then you realize how deep it really goes. Yeah. So how do you use music as a magical or initiatory tool? Hmm. So I've long looked at the music that I create as being a form of magical diary, mm-hmm. you know, reflecting where I'm at at that point in terms of emotional well-being, um, what I understand about my craft as a musician, but also expressing different ideas through it, whether in terms of the titles or the, the form and function of the songs or in lyrics among those that have uh, lyrics included. And it's also combined with, I've uh, for a very long time, I've created much of the music that I use as part of magical rituals as well. Uh, there's, a, there's definitely an art behind uh, setting the atmosphere appropriately for whatever the operation is at hand. But it's something you have to be careful about as well, because you don't want the, the music running the ritual. You still have to have this uh, this less than strictly formal uh, approach to it. Otherwise, you're you're just uh, you're just miming the ritual instead of actually performing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were uh, there was a, I believe it was in an old issue of the Cloven Hoof. Uh, LeBay uh, shared some of his ideas about what types of music with examples would work for different types of rituals. And that was something that was very influential on me as well of not just going, well, I like, um, let's just say I like Lustboard, for example, therefore I'm just going to use Lustboard in every ritual that I do. You have to find the thing that works with what you're doing. And I found that if I create music that goes with it, if I, if I take the ideas of the ritual and use them as part of creating appropriate music, that I enhance both of those in the process, you know, becomes uh, becomes part of the ritual itself instead of the the add-on to it uh, in, in the end. And so I, I, you know, I look back sometimes at um, older music of mine that I've not listened to in a long time. You know, sometimes I mean, sometimes you you cringe because of the production value, and you're like, "Wow, I really could have made that guitar sound better there," right. uh, or I could, "I could perform that part better." Which which is one level of looking back on these things and using them as a as a way to chart your growth. You know how how is your just how's your craft itself developed? But looking at them is uh, but taking back the emotional um, associations with it. Thinking about where was I living when I created this? What was I doing? Where was my career? What was I interested in? What was I trying to express through this? And using that as a way of seeing a former sort of version of yourself that gives you greater perspective on where it is that you are now. And sometimes you, you listen to those things and realize, wow, I've really come a long way because I was, you know, I didn't have a job that I liked, didn't have a relationship that I liked or whatever at, at the time. But then you look, you compare that, you bring out all those memories, that way of using it to store memory that you can draw on in order to gain greater perspective on yourself now. And then sometimes you even go back and listen to to things you've created and realize that I, uh, 
the didn't know that I could do that back then. You know, mm-hmm. realized that I was maybe further advanced than I realized at the time. Or even the the one that always trips me out is to go back and listen to something and go, I don't remember writing this. I don't remember playing this. I don't remember how this part goes. That sort of rediscovery of yourself in a sense that, that you had lost sight of for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's great as a reflective tool, uh, which is, I think, constant, constant reflection is necessary for initiation. You have to be able to, to know where you've been and to know where you're going. You have to be able to have some objective measure as well as subjective measures to understand whether you're spinning your wheels or whether you're actually doing anything productive along, along this quest. So, so that's, so these are the ideas that you have in mind when you go forth to work on, on, on eyes of Legia, right? Uh, yes, definitely. That's, uh, has for years been my main musical output. Uh, it's, you know, it reflects so much of what I understand at any given time and so much of what I'm interested in at any given time. Uh, for example, the most recent CD that I had done with that project, uh, which was the first one in a number of years that I w- had been able to complete and to put out, uh, was called The Sidereal Messenger, uh, which is one of the translations of the book that got Galileo in so much trouble with the church back in the 1600s. Um, and the theme, there was a theme behind uh, the entire CD that's all around a starry wisdom, the idea that if you study the stars, study their movements, movements, study what they um, evoke within ourselves, you learn something about ourselves as well. Uh, starry wisdom is, is a concept comes from H.P. Lovecraft in the story The Halter of the Dark, uh, that where he introduced a uh, nefarious religion called the Starry Wisdom Sect, or as he describes it, the unliked and dis- excuse me, the um, the disliked and unorthodox Starry Wisdom Sect, who was <laughs> who possess an object called the Shining Trapezohedron, which was a stone from the heavens that one could use to see things beyond the realm of, of three dimensions and five senses. Very reminiscent of the Grail Stone. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I was thinking, like the, the, the stone from Lucifer's crown. Absolutely. Um, but this is, this is the idea that through the study of the cosmos, through reacting to what we see, to connecting with the the first idea of the ordering of the world that would have been perceived by by man looking up at the sky realizing that the sun makes this path every day and it has some regularity to it these stars appear at certain times of years at certain times in the year the idea that uh, the constellations and the patterns we see that reflect that innate feature of human awareness of being able to perceive patterns whether abstract or real and through reflecting on this we're able to dig deeper into what it means to be a fully conscious being um so all of this sort of came out in the that cd uh so it's very influenced by lovecraft and related writers it's also influenced by uh astronomy and uh, the works of Kepler and you know the influence of Pythagoras onto that and so forth. So, uh, but, but again, I, that's what I was that's what I was delving deeply into at the time. It's a reflection of the things that occupied my time. The idea of starry wisdom as being a key component of the left hand path, of, as a way that we know ourselves through reflections within the world outside ourselves. 
So I've, I've been wanting to ask this so many times now. Have you ever read the book Holy Blood, Holy Grail? I have not, although I'm uh, fairly familiar with it. You're familiar with the basic concepts? Okay, so what what's your take on that? What do you think about it? <laughs> um, Is it true? The well, Re- René Le Chateau, the Re- René Le Chateau in southern France with the statue of Asmodeus in it? What does it mean? Um, well, you know, truth in relation to, to things that go back into the, into the dim past like that is kind of a hard road to hoe anyway. <laughs> um, but my, my personal kind of feeling is, is that uh, there was quite a bit of influence throughout Europe of these thing, things from foreign lands that, that came into play that became part of the war were, were certainly incorporated into Christianity. Christianity is, is an extremely syncretic religion. Uh, everywhere it spreads, it merges and takes on the property of the things it finds behind it. Um, so the with Asmodeus in particular, that goes actually goes back to um, go back to Persia again. Where <laughs> Imagine the, that. <laughs> um, with um, the original sort of Persian name of what we call Asmodeus of the Ashmedea. Um, so it's a very sort of ancient thing kind of brought forward, which I think is going to be, it's probably related to the same way I was describing the, the, the movement of the, these ideas and stories from Persia into Western Europe and into the Iberian Peninsula when it was under the Moorish occupation and then pops up in very strange ways in the rest of Europe in terms of the ways it influenced folklore and influenced um, styles and influenced um, you know, relationships. As you could even look, for example, like the um, a lot of the courtly behavior um, ideas that were explored were reflections in a sense of what they saw uh, in Moorish Spain, which uh, came from further back east. Um, so, which is kind of a roundabout way of saying that, that um, I would be kind of surprised if things like that didn't show up in mm. old churches and old monasteries in Europe, uh, because it was we think of because of the way that the current religious landscape is among the, world, the the big religions of the world, this deep animosity, or at least this deep seeming animosity between Christianity and Islam. Uh, between Islam and um, uh, Judaism, um, we forget easily that there were they spent hundreds of years in Europe, especially all coexisting peacefully side by side with one another, influencing one another, uh, becoming different facets of a multifaceted society, uh, and so you again, it would be very surprising to me if you didn't see influences like that in these places because they, they would have um, uh, in these churches and monasteries dating back hundreds of years ago, they, they would have been interested in, well, tell me the stories from your land. I'll mm-hmm. tell you the story. Oh, here, here's, here's the statue that represents something that, that um, that's a story that we, that we conveyed. Mm-hmm. Sure. We'll, we'll put it on this way. That sounds kind of cool. You know, it seems like, uh, it, it seems like you would expect these things to be popping up there. Now, wh- whether they mean, whether they have the meaning that's ascribed to them by the, the authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail, or you know Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code, and whatnot, 
Probably not, although I, I've learned not to be too forceful in ruling out such things because you really never know. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a, a good explanation. It's a good explanation. It's not as exciting as the idea of a secret cabal of devil worshippers, but I bet you know your version's all right. And you know, really, I'm just trying to get you to talk about Asmodeus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the secret. That's the hidden agenda of uh, of the D2 podcast is getting people to talk about Asmodeus. Well, the best part is it's still a hidden agenda, even if you say it out loud. Yeah, because <laughs> probably there's always the deeper mystery underneath. <laughs> So we're gonna like we're gonna like listen to some of your music here, Eyes of Legia. Um, before we uh, before we spin it though, do you have any final final words for our listeners out there? Well, I, I've touched on a lot of things today. There, are, you know, the Order of the Trapezoid, for example, has many many interests that go deep into the mists of time, and. So it's it's a lot to cover. It's hard to go very much in depth on a lot of the things we've touched on today. I, I will say that uh, some of the things that I've talked about will be covered in more detail in the book that I have forthcoming, uh, and they're also on the public website for the Order of the Trapezoid, which can be found at www.trapezoid.org.org. Uh, you can find essays by Michael Aquino, Stephen Flowers, Don Webb, and others about many of the topics that I cover today, as well as some contact information if you have further questions, um, as well as uh, the links back to the Temple of Set, which the Order of the Trapezoid is a part of the Temple of Set. Uh, that is the, the central basis for the magical work that I do. Uh, the Order of the Trapezoid is just the primary expression of that. Uh, so I would definitely encourage listeners who are captivated or by anything that I said uh, or any of the topics that we delved into to check out some of those resources uh, to see if they can learn uh, further about them for the things they did find interesting. Now, about the, the song I believe you're going to play, um, as I mentioned, the, this album, The Sidero and Messenger, uh, was focused on these themes of starry wisdom. There was a, a great... Uh, phrase in one of Lovecraft's stories where he was describing the, the so-called demon star Algol, uh, where he refers to the uh, the mysterious coruscations of the demon light, uh, and that is in fact the title of the song here. Um, the the theme up behind the song is how one resolves this seeming duality between the objective universe, the mechanistic universe around us. And the subjective universe that is the sentience of every thinking being within it, mm -hmm. uh, these become a unified concept, and it's not just a simplistic idea about you know matter spirit dualism and things like that, or the idea that one of these must be good and the other must therefore be bad. Mm -hmm. uh, how does one take a deeper approach to understanding how these things interrelate with with each other? Mm -hmm. Excellent. So this is Coruscations of the Daemon Light from the album The Sidereal Messenger, and this is Eyes of Lygia.
amazing. I can totally see why he calls that starry wisdom music. Starry wisdom and ambient doom. I mean, you can really uh, lose yourself in that kind of stuff. Maybe find yourself. Maybe find some things you didn't expect. In any case, we really appreciated having Toby Chapel on the show. Look for more of his music, Eyes of Legia or Miss Dreamt on Bandcamp. You can check out more of his influence in the world that is on uh, www.trapezoid.org. And look for his forthcoming book, Infernal Geometry. And with all of that, my friends and fellow daemons, until next time, keep the dark fire burning. Thank you.